Grab your Bibles and I'm going to do something that please don't do at home. Um, I'm going to jump in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a paragraph. Um, but um, I'm not the only one that does this. These two verses are usually isolated from the paragraph. But just know that we're in the middle of a paragraph as we read verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Here we go. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, I don't know uh, how much Bible knowledge each of you have. Um, Some may have a lot, some may have very little. But if you've got the barest of minimums of Bible knowledge, you probably have heard someplace these two verses. Maybe you didn't know they were in Romans, but you've heard this, particularly verse 9. I bet you've heard it someplace, especially if you were raised in the church, if you, uh, if if your childhood was spent in a church. Or if, as a young adult, you were um, in some kind of scripture memory program, you have heard of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. They are, they are famous verses, and they're, they're famous rightly so, because um, they're verses that tell us, basically, or not basically, they tell us how it is that one becomes a Christian. Look at the end of verse 9. Um, well, it starts with, if you confess, you will be saved. What you're getting here in Romans nine and Romans ten nine and ten is a definition of saving faith. Paul is outlining for you in a very succinct way, in a very uh, small way, how it is one would become a Christian. If then you will be saved. That's what this is. He is giving us a definition of saving faith. Now, guys. <clears throat> um, I assume that you know this. Surely you know that not all faith is saving faith. In fact, I don't even use the term faith anymore because it's confusing. Not all faith is saving faith. The New Testament teaches that, I guess in several places, but the one that you might know of, James chapter 2, where uh, where James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. You see, demons have faith, but it's not a saving faith. I I told this story on a Wednesday night, but actually, I I want you to know that it it was a story that I heard another preacher tell. And when this preacher told it, he said, I heard this other preacher tell it. So I'm telling you a story that's kind of third generational, a third generational story. And you'll tell how you'll be able to tell how old it is just because of some of the details. But it has to do with a late night talk show. You know, the David Letterman's and Jay Leno's of the world, you know, that those kind of things. Well, this was several years ago, uh, back before David Letterman, uh, when David Frost, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to be my age or older to remember David Frost being the uh, late night talk show host. But uh, he was the David Letterman of that day. And, and uh, that particular night, his guest was a woman by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare. Now, that's another name that's not familiar to some of you, but if you've never heard the name, Madeline Murray O'Hare is probably the most famous of all atheists who've ever lived. 
She was outspoken. She was vocal. She brought into being the American Association of Atheists. She was murdered um, at the end of her... Well, she was murdered and found in some shallow grave in the desert in Texas, I think. Something like that. But Madeline Murray O'Hare was the guest of David Frost uh, on this particular episode. And so, of course, David Frost and, and she were dialoguing about the existence of God. Does God exist? Is there a God? Yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the, the conversation was going back and forth, and it really wasn't getting anywhere. And so uh, a frustrated David Frost finally said, okay, I'm going to settle this in the good old-fashioned American way. We're going to take a vote. And so he turned to his uh, his audience, and he said, how many of you out there believe that God exists? And, of course, if not every hand, almost every hand shot up. Now, the preacher, the original preacher that told this story said this. He said, Madeline Murray O'Hare, Mr. Chance, what she should have done at that moment is she should have done something like this. She should have said, um, I, I see your hands, but could I take my own poll? And then turned to the audience and said, how many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who thundered at Sinai. The God who um, is described as a consuming fire in the book of Hebrews. The God who claims to be the father of the Lord Jesus Christ who had to come and, and die on a cross for people's sin. How many of you believe in that God? Now, how many hands do you think would go up? <laughs> I'm only trying to illustrate this, ladies and gentlemen. Not all faith is saving faith. The percentage, I don't know, but you just got to understand that not all faith is saving faith. And what Paul is giving you here in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, is a definition of saving faith. Okay? Now, before we get to my, my two major points this morning, um, which are, first of all, the content of saving faith, and then the character, uh, or the character of saving. Those are my two points. There's one other thing that I want to say by way of preface, or there's a little preamble in the in the text. If you look at it in verse nine, uh, Paul begins like this. He says, "If we confess." Now, guys, um, you you real do you, do you see that he starts with uh, this this idea of that there is a certain basic. Um, set of beliefs that are essential in saving faith. That the place that every Christian must start is, what do I believe? Notice that Paul doesn't start by describing a lifestyle. He doesn't just start by describing behavior. He doesn't say, saving faith is... I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. He doesn't start with, with deeds or acts or the kind of, um, moral lifestyle. He doesn't start like that. And very honestly, folks, you, surely you realize that the world's concept of Christianity is that it's that and nothing more. That Christianity is some kind of morality. It's some kind of ethic that people live by. It's a code. There's, there's a woman who is a member of this church and she's a, a nurse and she's a very well-respected nurse in her, in her field and, 
And um, she told me about a year ago that uh, because of something that had happened at her hospital, or maybe in another hospital, but um, the hospital said that every nurse in the hospital had to take a course on medical ethics, a course offered by the hospital. And so all the nurses got together to take this course on medical ethics. And so she said, we sat for three hours, and basically, the essence of the course on ethics was the golden rule. you got to believe in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because, guys, that is the world's concept of what religion is. What That is, Christianity is that. It's a morality. It's a... And it's an ethical lifestyle. Gang, all I'm saying is, Paul begins like this. If you confess, all of us have to be sure, out of the chute, first and foremost, in what is it that we believe? What are the things in which we believe? He doesn't start with a lifestyle. He doesn't start with his your emotional life. Well, a Christian is one who is love, sweet love. He doesn't start with emotions. He doesn't start with how you feel. He doesn't start with um, how you live, what you do, what your lifestyle, what your behavior. He starts like this. If we confess. There is a certain body of information to which we must give assent that are things that we believe. Now, what are those things? He gives you, he gives them to you right there in verse nine. He says, he starts like this. If we confess that Jesus is Lord <laughs> gosh, and believe that God raised him from the dead, there's the content folks. Four things let me point out. First of all, take that sentence, that small sentence, three words, Jesus is Lord. Three things out of there. First of all, guys, that, that, that little three, those little three words have so many implications we could talk about on the rest of the morning. Start with Jesus. Uh, that's his name. <laughs> uh, Lord is a title. But Jesus is his name. It's his name that was given to him by Joseph. In, uh, actually, the angels gave it to Joseph to give to Jesus. But his father gave him a name. His name was Jesus. Like, my name is Jimmy. His name was Jesus. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Which means, of course, that he was a man who belongs into the course of human history. Guys, do you realize that there are cults that have denied the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he, that he really wasn't a real man? Well, that's the first thing that you're confessing. That you believe that Jesus was a man in the humanity of Christ. He is a man that belongs to the record of human history. Jesus is Lord. Well, now that, that word Lord uh, is a big one. It's the Greek word kurios. And kurios is the New Testament Greek version of an Old Testament word, Yahweh. You ever heard of that one? <laughs> it's on bumper stickers. Yahweh. What Paul is saying is, if we confess Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God, um, that he is the second person of the Trinity, he is God in flesh, God become man. So right out of the chute, guys, we're confessing the humanity 
and the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, thirdly, the question confronts us, why did God have to become a man? There was a, um, a, a massive volume that was written by a guy by the name of Anselm. And I, I want to say 8th century. But, I, you know, when it's 8th, 10th, 6th, you know, I get those mixed up. But uh, somewhere in the 8th century or, so, or thereabouts, a guy by the name of Anselm wrote a book entitled Cardeus Homo. Anybody know Latin? Cardeus Homo. Why God man? Why did God become man? And he spends this whole huge volume answering, why did God become man? And it's answered throughout the New Testament, folks. It's answered in in all kinds of ways, but let me give you the simplest. It's a statement that Jesus makes in Mark 10. Mark 10, chapter 4, verse 45, he says this. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I came... To serve my people by giving my life for them. I came to save them. I came to be the Savior. So you understand that when you confess Jesus as Lord, you're, you're confessing his, his Saviorhood. That's what the, the shepherds were told that night when they were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So guys, um, this saving faith, the content is that you're, you're giving, you're saying that you believe that this Jesus was God in flesh who came to save. You are saying in saving faith, that you believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then there's one more thing. The text goes on to say, and God, and that God raised him from the dead. Do you see it? It's right in verse nine, folks. I didn't stick it in there. I mean, that, that an essential part of saving faith is a belief in the resurrection. That the tomb was empty. That God raised him from the dead. Now, now, why is the resurrection so important? Guys, there's lots of reasons that we could say that the resurrection is important. But could I read you just one, and then I'll mention another? But this is out of Romans chapter 1. And again, I'm, I'm jumping in the middle of a sentence. And it's talking about Jesus, and he says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was, here we go, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Guys, one of the things that the resurrection does is that it proves all of the claims that Jesus made about Himself. I am who I claim to be. And the proof of that is in the resurrection. There's one other thing. It's in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It says that He was um, raised for our justification. What's that all about? Well, guys, when Jesus Christ died, the question that is asked is, was that enough? Did God accept that? And, and, and the resurrection, by the way, you know, notice the text says, God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is a declaration. 
It's a declaration on the part of God the Father that everything that he did is enough. It's acceptable. It's adequate. It has accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. I approve. The resurrection is a declaration, first, that God has approved of his finished work, and secondly, that it proves the validity of all the claims that he made about himself. Guys, do you understand that without any resurrection, there is no Christianity? So if what you believe does not include a, 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 a commitment to the resurrection, then what you have is not saving faith. <laughs> if you believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, see, that's the definition of saving faith. The, the, once the church was born, the, the New Testament church was born, you remember that? That's in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The first sermon of the Christian church by Peter, the theme of that sermon was the resurrection. The church never got over it. And so she continued to flood the streets with the message about Jesus rising from the dead. The resurrection is an essential part of saving faith, folks. Now, let me, let me point this out also. Um, yeah. Um, I want you to notice in the text what Paul doesn't include. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't, there's not a hint. There's not a, there's not a mention of anything about baptism. Now, guys, I don't know whether you watch your televisions, but there is a certain particular denomination that is flooding the airwaves with an, with a commercial saying, that you got to be baptized or you will never be saved. Have you seen it? In fact, it preceded the Super Bowl. But they're still running. I saw it a week ago. Gang, I want you to take a look at what Paul says. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead and then go get Jimmy Young to baptize you, not a word. Not a word in there, ladies and gentlemen, about having baptism is important. We're going to we're going to have an immersion service on the, after the second hour. It's an important sacrament, ladies and gentlemen, but it is not salvific. What we as the Christian Church have got to do is make sure that people understand what they're saying yes to. Do you, do you hear that? We've got to make sure. That the people that we're talking to about Jesus understand what they're saying yes to. Guys, in this particular moment in history, there's a lot of people who are under a lot of stress. Some of you. And the thing that we're looking for is happiness. Somebody tell me how to be happy. And, And me too? It's a felt need. But our real need is to be reconciled to God. Um, so we cannot medicate symptoms only. We have to tell people, this is what you're committing yourself to. This, this divine personage who, who came from Nazareth, who saved by dying, and God raised him from the dead. 
It's the content of saving faith. Now, let me let me make my second point, and we'll and we'll quit. Um, let me tell you about the um, the character, the character or the nature of saving faith, guys. I, I want to mention five things. One of them is in the text; the other four are throughout the New Testament. We're talking about the character of saving faith. We just we just looked at the content, and now let's look at the character of saving faith. Number one, it is a gift. Guys, you've heard the text. I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I will. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Did you get it? Did you see it? Let, let me let me go slower. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, comma, and that not of yourself. What's the that? What's the that refer to? It refers to faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Guys, saving faith is a work of God in, as a part of this whole thing we call regeneration. When God took out your heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh, what he did was then give you the ability to believe. As a part of regeneration, we now have the ability to embrace this beautiful gospel. It's a gift. And guys, anything short of it being a gift would be then something you could boast in. And the text just got through telling you, don't boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No boasting. Guys, Rome's position is that the instrumental cause of justification is baptism. It's called ex opera operato. <laughs> I brought that all the way from my seminary training, just for you. Ex opera operato. It's a Latin phrase which simply means the work works. That is, the thing does it. So the instrumental cause of your justification is your baptism that infuses the grace of justification within you through this thing called baptism. Guys, if that's true, then when you get before God, you tell him this. You tell him that the reason that you're here is because you got baptized, which would be hmm, a boast. There's not going to be any boasting. Saving faith is a gift, ladies and gentlemen. It's a gift. It's a gift, a work of God brought about through the work of regeneration. That's number one. Number two, it is alone. <laughs> Saving faith is alone. There's no additions to it, guys. Now, let me say that that does not appear in the New Testament. That uh, by faith alone. It, it, it does not appear in the New Testament. But the concept does. Can I, can I mention a couple? First, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that, that's Romans 3, 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That apart from is this whole idea of 
alone. That is, it, saving faith is alone. And I want to, and I want to read you just one verse. This is, this is out of Galatians 2. It's verse 16. Don't turn there, but I just want to read it to you because it's almost funny. How, I mean, it's a fairly long verse, but three times in the same verse, Paul says the same thing. He just repeats it all three times. Listen to it. Gosh, you can get this. Listen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's one verse. Galatians 2.16. He says it three times. They were justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from the works of the law. Apart from the works of the law. But because of the bad works of the law, no man, we would justify it. Saving faith is alone. It's, um, it abandons any, any sense of merit. It understands that there's only merit in Christ. That he is sufficient. And so any kind of additions to it is, is a fatal mistake. You know, of course, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Calvin, and, and Calvin said this, either everything or nothing must be ascribed to faith and works. Now, you don't get that, do you? But let me, uh, yes, you do. L- let me, what he's saying is, either you've got to ascribe everything to faith or nothing to faith. Or you've got to ascribe everything to works or nothing to works. Because those two things, ladies and gentlemen, are mutually exclusive. That's why he was so upset in in the book of Galatians about the addition of circumcision. Saving faith. Don't tamper with it. It stands alone. Okay. Thirdly, saving faith is what Martin Luther called fetus viva. Um, it's, it's just a Latin phrase that means living faith. Saving faith is living as opposed to dead. It's not barren. Guys, saving faith or justification is by faith alone, but it is not by a faith that is alone. Do you, do you get that? Saving faith always reconstructs the whole man. Saving faith is always evidenced in the, in the production of a new life over time. Or said a different way, justification is always attached to sanctification. Those two things are different, but they're inseparable. Don't ever, don't ever divorce them. Justification always follow, is followed by sanctification. Justification uh, is outside of me. Sanctification is inside of me. Justification is once and for all. Sanctification is a process. They're different things, yes, but they are never to be separated, folks. Never. Saving faith always produces a changed life. It produces fruit. Gang, that's the whole big argument that goes on in James chapter 2 that it's confused so many of you. Saving faith proves itself to be saving faith by the production over time of a different man. It changes me. It always does, folks. 
Saving faith always makes us into different people. Don't ever divorce those two things because faith is living. It's a thing that once you have it, it begins to reconstruct who you are. It begins to remake you. And and the inevitable result of saving faith is a changed life over time. I, I think I've told you this before, but I became a Christian at age 22. And at that moment, at age 22, I had three goals in life. Three. Here were my goals. I wanted to climb very high in Procter & Gamble. I wanted to make a whole lot of money. And I wanted to buy a boat. That was what I lived for. But you know what? I'm older now. (laughs) A little bit. None of those things matter anymore. Now, but I'll tell you, there's, there's other all wacky things that are in here. But over time, the possession of saving faith reworks your wiring. It gives you a different spiritual DNA. It's fetus viva. It's living. It's making us all, little by little, Different people, our values change and our perspectives change and the way that we parent changes and the way that we work changes. It changes, guys, because the inevitable result of saving faith is that it begins the process of of sanctification, guys. Um, now, it always or justification always comes with good works, but you certainly know that those works have no saving merit to them. In fact, Augustine called them that our best of works are nothing but splendid vices. When we're at our best, it's a splendid vice. But ladies and gentlemen, those splendid vices are the inevitable result of being in possession of saving faith. Two more things, real quick. Thirdly, or fourthly, saving faith is the instrument of my justification. It is never the basis of my justification. Folks, God does not, he does not count a believer righteous on the basis of their faith. God counts a believer righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to him through the instrument of faith. How does the righteousness of Christ become mine? I reach out with an empty hand of a beggar and I lay hold. It's called faith, ladies and gentlemen. I lay hold of who Christ is and what he did. The benefits of Christ's work become mine through faith. Faith is not the basis of my salvation. The finished work of Christ is the basis of my salvation. That becomes mine through the instrument of faith. Guys, you are not saved by believing in believing. You are saved by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Finally, the text says that all of this faith is done in the heart. In the heart, from the heart, however you want to say it. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And that's why I read verse 10, because he repeats that. You find the word heart repeated in verse 10. All of this, ladies and gentlemen, is something that comes. Not as an intellectual assent to some set of facts. It comes from the very center of my being. Folks, no one was ever saved by believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. (laughs) They're saved by believing in Christ. And his great work is explained to us in the doctrine of justification by faith. But doctrinal orthodoxy saves no one. It is Christ that saves. And he saves when we lay hold of his righteousness by faith. It's not an intellectual sin. It's a commitment of my heart. That little space between my head and my heart. That little 12 inches right here. A very important 12 inches, ladies and gentlemen. Because I don't believe savingly with this. I believe savingly with this. Is that what you got? Do you have that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the definition of saving faith. Those who are in possession of that will be saved. All other than that might be faith, but it's just not saving faith. Our Father, I again plead with you to make clear what I have bungled. Where I have uh, confused people, would you would you stop their ears? But where but where what I have said is true to your word, would you would you honor it? Would you would you use it uh, to help us sort out all the great beauties of the gospel? Thank you, O God, for the privilege that is mine to describe it. But, Lord, I am very aware of my own shortcomings, my own failings, my own inadequacies. And I hope, I pray, O God, that you will not hold your people um, guilty because I am such a failing. And I pray that you will make clear the beauty of this good news, which we call Justification by faith alone. Do that, Father, for the expansion of and the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.